And so what I could do is just say, hey, I don't actually understand this. I don't know how it all fits together, but there are certain things that I know. I know that scripture is God's inerrant word, (laughs) and it's true. And I also can see this with my own two eyes, and I can talk to these other scientists. They're not evil anti-Christians. They're not making stuff up. There's something legitimate going on there. I just don't know how it all fits together. (laughs) Welcome to Christ and Culture the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Quinn. Later in today's episode, we're going to answer one of your questions in our Ask the Profs segment. But in the Christ and Culture conversation today, we're going to talk with Dr. Joshua Swamidas about his unique take on the creation-evolution debate. Dr. Keithley, many of our listeners may not agree with everything Dr. Swamidas says, but in our opening segment, it gives us some guidelines for how you engage these conversations and how we can as well. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, let's remember in these types of conversations, we're going to have encounters with people across the spectrum. All of them have something important to say to us. And Dr. Swamidas is a great example of someone who has something very important to say, even if I don't agree with everything that he says. The Christ and Culture podcast reports uh, from the vanguard of conversations that are going on in the public square. So this means we're going to hear a variety of views, and this is going to be one of several views that are currently being discussed in the area of faith and science, particularly in the doctrine of creation and theological anthropology. I cannot overstate how important the conversation about the historical Adam is at this time. There's a lot of, of discoveries going on in the scientific field, in the area of paleontology, genetic discoveries that are going on. Many of these are new claims, some of which end up being adjusted. Uh, we have to keep all of that in mind. So it's important that we hear from those who are engaged in these various studies. So when we interview someone like Dr. Swamidas, uh, who is a blessing to the church, But this doesn't mean that we endorse him with a blanket endorsement of everything that he's going to advocate. Here's an important point to remember. We are going to hear from a variety of perspectives over the season of this podcast. The thing to remember as we go about doing these podcasts is that we at Christ and Culture, at the Bush Center, and at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, We are and continue to be committed to the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, and we have complete confidence in the Bible's sufficiency to guide us in all of these questions. We address a wide variety of topics here at the Center for Faith and Culture, but one topic comes up again and again. And this is the topic of human origins. I mean, we've hosted conferences on the historical Adam and Eve. Uh, We've even had debates between those who held to evolution and those who held to young earth creationism. And all of these conversations wrestle with the question, 
how do we best reconcile what we know to be true in the Bible with what we observe in the natural world? Well, today's guest has a unique perspective on this question, and we want to talk to him about it. Dr. Joshua Swamidas is both a scientist and a physician. He has both a Ph.D. and a medical doctorate, and he serves as Associate Professor of Laboratory and Genomic Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, where he uses artificial intelligence to explore science at the intersection of medicine, biology, and chemistry. He's author of of a book that I found very provocative and intriguing. It's the book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. Dr. Swamidas, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's going to be a fun conversation, I think. I think so. So let's get a little background about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, uh, your faith journey, how you, as a Christian, became a scientist. Just walk us through it. I'm a second-generation immigrant. That means my parents came here from India, and I was born in California. I grew up there. They're Christians. And, uh, you know, how did I become a Christian? Well, my parents told me about it. You know, I inherited it in that way. I heard about it from them, and I received it, and I made it my own. And uh, I was also made for science. I was continually drawn towards science. Like, God made me for it. I, I just was drawn to understanding how the world worked and the beauty of his creation. And I just continually would kind of have that instability that arises about the totally different narratives you hear in church about how God created everything versus how, you know, in some godless story it, it really looked like out of, out of science. And so I was kind of in that spot. So I would be continually in this place of, of kind of coming back to the gospel that my mom told me that Jesus rose from the dead and he died for my sins. Um, and then kind of encountering that and, and following Jesus. But then having that confidence challenged as I, as I went to science. And so that was really the, the insecurity and the struggle, I think, of growing up as a Christian in a scientific world. So you grew up in Southern California. Uh, you were someone who became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You met him in a saving way. Uh, and God has called you to be uh, someone who explores the world that he created. Uh, tell us, uh, what did that look like in terms of where did you go to school? Uh, and, and while you're at school, how did you work through those, those areas of where it seemed to be incongruence? So I was in, my, my family is young earth creationists, and I was young earth creationists too. And the schools I went to were, I mean, initially for elementary school, there, there were Christian schools where, um, you know, they, were, they definitely skewed that direction. And so it just seemed like, you know, when you read scripture, that's, that's what it taught. And, you know, I, I, I had and maybe even continue to have a, a very literal reading of, of Genesis. But things got complicated as I started to actually learn and understand beyond just that fishbowl, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you can be pretty comfortable with a fishbowl that's internally consistent. But when you start dealing with outside that fishbowl, it can really stretch you. So, I mean, the early stuff is just like listening to stuff on the Discovery Channel, if you know what that is. I mean, yeah. that doesn't, I mean, it's kind of outside our, our world right now. But a lot of us, when we were younger, there wasn't the internet. We learned about stuff in documentaries online, right? But then even then, as I started reading more and more, um, you know, I went to a public high school. And then I went to a secular university. I started finding out, oh, you know, maybe these cartoon views of what, um, what those evolutionists are aren't actually true. Maybe there is more legitimacy to this than, than I thought. Um, 
and maybe there's even more diversity in the church than I thought. All of these things were, were really surprising and took a lot of work to to make sense of. And I um, and it was it was not easy. It was a place of real internal turmoil for as it is for many science students. And so they, they've actually done studies on why young people leave the church. One of the top reasons that David McKinnon kind of points to in the last me is science. Yeah, I, I, I was about to say that, that uh, at, it, this is at the point where you're, you are a, a Christian in a, an academic setting. You're in the scientific realm. There's, this is where um, many find themselves saying, okay, I, I, I'm going to have to make a choice between Scripture or the understanding of science, and many times they unfortunately just jettison the faith. You didn't do that. Uh, so was it because you you were focused on Christ? How how how? Talk to us about that. How you then worked through the next phase there. I mean, I'm not Lutheran, but I think Lutherans are on to something when they talk about paradox and tension and holding on to things that are at least on the surface level contradictory. <laughs> and so what I could do is just say, hey, I don't actually understand this. I don't know how it all fits together, but there are certain things that I know. I know that Scripture is God's inerrant word, <laughs> and it's true. And I also can see this with my own two eyes, and I can talk to these other scientists. They're not evil anti-Christians. They're not making stuff up. There's something legitimate going on there. I just don't know how it all fits together. Yeah. <laughs> and be comfortable in that place of not knowing at all, just knowing that there's something legitimate here, there's something legitimate here, and I just don't know how it fits together. And then there's um, some stuff that my, my parents taught me out of Scripture, you know, reading Proverbs, which I think really is – is really the right starting point advice. Um, if you read Proverbs 4, 7, it says, above all else, seek understanding. And I think the right thing to do in these places is not to just kind of go reactively for or against science or scripture and all that. I think that leads to bad decisions all around. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, what's hard is to be in that place of saying, you know, I disagree with that, but I really want to understand it. And it's worth understanding things that we disagree with. And it's worth understanding things we think are wrong. <laughs> and and that's where I was, where I was like, okay, I don't understand this yet. I'm going to be truthful about that. And I really want to understand. Even if it's wrong, I want to understand. I think that what you're talking about is such a helpful um, a, a helpful stance. You say, uh, if the only way I can move forward confidently in any arena is that I have to have every question answered, one's not going to make much progress, not only in their faith, they're not going to make much progress in the field of science. Uh, we, we all have to deal with a certain level of ambiguity at certain times, saying, well, there's certain central things that I know uh, at this point, and I'm going to rely on that. Well, I'd say also that one of the things that I value so much about that experience, I'm so glad that God put me into the Earth Creationist family. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm so glad that I went through that in retrospect now because I think there's a type of spiritual formation that happened to me. Uh, uh, I, I would say a, a rediscovery, a renewal, a returning to um, what is actually the core of the faith. And I'd been taught about so many things that were supposedly central. But, uh, but I found something that was greater than all that. It was the gospel of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, that Christ made himself known. God made himself known to the whole world by, by raising this man Jesus from the dead. <laughs> and we know that according to Scripture. 
uh, which means according to prophecy. And then there's this public testimony of the church through history. And that's where I was supposed to find my confidence, not in arguments against evolution and or for evolution or for any of this nonsense that I've been taught. Like my confidence wouldn't come from science. It wasn't going to come from creation science for sure. That was just an unstable place to put my faith. And, um, and what I came to really understand, um, and it was a hard thing to learn because I'm an idolater at heart, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I encounter God. I encountered that over and over again and would turn to science for confidence. What I found over and over again is that, you know, whether or not evolution is true, Jesus is greater. He is worth following, even if none of this makes sense. Yeah. And with that confidence then, I could enter the question in the space of origins not knowing the answer because – as important as it really is, it really isn't important compared to him. And, and what the remarkable thing is, is that now years later, you have written a book in which you have argued uh, very strongly for a scientific model that allows for the very real possibility of a historical man and woman we'd call Adam and Eve. Yeah. And um, I mean, other people have put forward ideas about that. Um, but the real thing behind this is I found out in this process of understanding is that I think that a lot of people just misunderstood the science. And, yeah. and there was just a lot more range about what is actually possible, and uh, both in terms of what the evidence allows and even what scientific com- community will actually dignify and treat with respect. And so it was you, a missed opportunity, right? So you continue your education, and uh, you don't just go into science. You go into the biological sciences. Yeah, and, right uh, to the— the belly of the beast. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, tell our listeners what type of pro- – I, I said that you are uh, a professor of genomic uh, medicine uh, or genomic medicine maybe the better, better way to pronounce that. What exactly is it that you do? Well, I'm a biologist. I'm a computational biologist. So I write computer software to answer questions about biology. And also chemistry and medicine. And so I'm a, medic, a leading medical school, WashU. It's like a you know top ten, top five medical school. And uh, I, I have grants running research trying to understand things about the world. And it's a wonderful job. I mean, it is just amazing. Most of it isn't actually about origins, but what's there is kind of like this um, consensus view that you know we arose that way. And we can talk about why that's there, and even how I changed my mind on that. And so it kind of pervades everything, too, and it has an impact on almost every idea in biology. Now, some people would say it's ideology. Um, I don't actually think that that's what's going on. It just turns out to be an incredibly useful <laughs> framework. Even if it's false, we can say for certainty it's very useful it in wor- sciences. It, it works remarkably well. Yeah, and this is something that I didn't realize, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, how did I change my mind? I mean, I'd say there's actually... Uh, three things that happened. The first thing was looking really closely at scripture and realizing that there's a difference between what I've been told scripture says and what scripture actually says. Okay. And then really looking at it closely and seeing, okay, if I'm going to take this seriously, I got to take it more seriously than just taking, you know, X person's word for what it actually says. Let me see what Genesis actually says. And now I'm not some scholar or whatever. And, you know, you could be a scholar. I'm not, and look at ancient Near Eastern literature. I didn't have any of that stuff there. I was just saying, look, what do actually the words say? <laughs> yeah. They don't actually say what this young earth creationist is telling me. And and so in the end, I had to just decide, am I bound to that person's word, that, that man's word, or am I bound to God's word? And in the end, I'm bound to God's word, <laughs> not, not that person's word. And I don't actually see a conflict here. Um, 
and and I think a really critical point too is actually looking at actual church history. Now, once again, I'm, I don't have the benefit of actually going to seminary um, and taking a class in historical theology, but I, I came across this article um, that looked at Augustine's reading, of, a literal reading of Genesis. And what struck me about it uh, was how different his literal reading of Genesis was from the literal gen- readings of Genesis that were there. I can see, okay, there are multiple literal readings. Well, <laughs> Which and, one is correct? <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think that uh, what you're talking about, how you as a scientist had, had uh, a little bit of an epiphany whenever you saw the range of views within theology. Let me flip the narrative here, and let me talk about the very first time I, in, I met you was at a conference in Chicago. Uh, and there, it was a meeting in which there was about 100 uh, uh, academics. There were scientists, there were theologians, there were philosophers <laughs> and biblical scholars. And, and I remem- my first time ever being there, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I remember there, uh, there was a panel discussion, and the, one, of the, one of the speakers was talking about Darwinism, and he had, um, he, he was, he had given a riff for about five or ten minutes about Darwinism, and then you stood and said, and, and I, I can't, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember word for word, but you said, um, why do you keep on talking about Darwinism? Uh, I'm in the biological sciences, and no biologist I know is a Darwinist. Uh, you're talking about ancient history. Why are you doing that? Now, that was quite a shocking statement in that room, and I suspect that for our listeners, that's a shocking statement to hear today. And it's easy to misunderstand. You were not saying that biologists don't hold to evolution. You were saying that the Darwinian explanation is passe. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, so Darwinism means this idea that you can explain the majority of life through positive selection. And um, I mean that, that's how the person using it was even meaning the term. <laughs> yeah. And that by positive selection, you mean what we would call natural selection? Well, I would say like a narrow component of natural selection, which is positive selection. That, that's how you explain the diversity of life, which means that uh, it's, it's kind of like, I would say, a very cartoonized explanation of, of how evolution works. And and also it's connected. Darwin also is also can mean uh, it can also mean atheism. <laughs> and so it just means like it's like this philosophical, you know, naturalism or materialism. A non teleological understanding that there's no purpose yeah. or direction. It's all just random accidents. Yeah. And both those things are just not actually what the current science is. The current science. So if you go back to about the 1960s. So Darwinism was actually. You know, there was a guy named Moto Kimura yeah. who discovered something called neutral theory, and he was responding to Haldane. It was interesting. I'd heard about Haldane. So Haldane kind of talks about the problem of there's not enough time for a, a positive selection to really have produced all the changes we see genetically between different animals, and that he poses that problem. So, so what 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 you have is a you know, and Haldane is no one would confuse him as with a Christian or a theist. He is a scientist looking at the evidence and saying that. Natural selection, as we understand it to operate, there's just simply not enough time for it to have accomplished what we're saying that it accomplished. And, you know, I'd heard about Haldane from creationists because they kind of keyed into him and they said, ah, I see he's showing all these problems with Darwinism. But what I'd never heard from creationists, which which when I found this out, I honestly felt like I'd been lied to because they must have known this, I I thought. I mean, if they're experts— 
who were coming there trying to give us the best science, they would have known that, you know, there was Darwinism, how Dane came. So how did the scientific community respond? Well, we find out that they recognize, oh, he's right. And then Moto Kimura came up with an answer <laughs> and showed that actually the majority of genetic changes don't actually occur by positive selection. They occur by other processes. And uh, depending on what you care about, and certainly when you start looking at biochemical and genetic issues, actually other processes end up being far more important <laughs> for explaining the bulk of changes. And, um, and, you know, that wasn't the end of the story either. I mean, that got refined more and more. Um, and so right now the current uh, consensus is when you start talking about genetic change, it's that the majority of changes are either neutral or near neutral. Like there's a debate about how neutral they are and how it interacts. Yeah. So, so you need to go ahead and explain what you mean by most are neutral. What do you mean by that? So positive selection means that is that there's some mutation that happens that's that's beneficial to the to the organism, and then it gets selected for. That's mm -hmm. positive selection. That's just not how the majority of evolution works. Um, it turns out the majority of it is that there's a mutation that happens that is neither that helpful or that 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 hurtful, and just by neutral processes, by drift, it it ends up, and it turns out that that um, that the mathematics of that ends up being the core of population genetics. Um, which is going to become really important in my book. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, this is all the stuff that I was fearful of learning, and I was because it it, it actually kind of it, it actually resolves Haldane's dilemma and Haldane's objection. Um, and so now it's no longer an argument against uh, common descent, uh, but uh, and you know maybe there's something else wrong with it. And you know there's definitely a lot of unanswered questions in evolution. But what struck me though, as I started to learn more and more about the science of this stuff is that um, I was only being given um, a very narrow view, a very selective view of what the science was by, by talking to creationists, and it wasn't really engaging what the current views were among scientists. And, uh, and so I had a hard time trusting it in the end. I mean, there's this point where, you know, if you're going to disagree with evolution, you really have to engage the strongest arguments for it and show how they're really broken. But I found out that most of the creationist work I was looking at um, was either ignorant of or was flat out ignoring, like willfully ignoring those things. And so that, yeah. that, that really made it hard for me to trust that work. And well, so let's then go to the next step because one would think at this point you'd say, okay, we're just going to have to jettison Genesis, but that's not what you do. You end up saying that the whole debate about genetics and trying to find um, y chromosome Adam and metrochondrial Eve, that yeah. you can argue very strongly for a historical Adam and Eve from a genealogical perspective. Yeah, so what you're describing is this reality, even among Christians, right, that, um, that go down this path that I'm describing. And maybe even some of the listeners here are thinking, oh, I can hear it coming, I can wait for it, but you're going to get a twist because that's not what happens for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> is that they end up really revising how they read Genesis in dramatic ways. Um, a lot of Christians go towards a mythological reading um, uh, of it and just don't think Adam and Eve are real. Or, or they make other fairly large modifications of, like, you know, historical Christian doctrine. And some of them will even come back and say that science really, you know, pushes that, right? Yeah. Now, I was observing all of that. But I got to tell you, like, over and over again, I would be saying, but wait a minute. That doesn't actually make sense. They're saying that this and this are in conflict, but is that really in conflict? I don't actually see the conflict. And I was genuinely confused at a, at a certain point about what people were saying the conflict was between Adam and Eve. Um, like, what actually is the conflict that they were seeing? And, uh, and there were still some questions about, about this for me because it seemed like 
and we'll talk about what people said the conflict is in a moment, but, but there were some questions. But then as I got a chance to kind of study that further and really look at it and actually engage with some of those scientists making those big claims, I realized, oh, my goodness, there's nothing behind these claims of conflict. <laughs> so you end up arguing in your book that Adam and Eve could have been real people who lived uh, six to 10,000 years ago who are now the ancestors, the progenitors of every human being here on Earth. Yeah, and not only that, they could have been created without parents. Especially uh, de novo, created. just like Genesis 2 says, Yeah, I mean, out I, of the dust of the ground. And, you know, there's legitimate debate about what Genesis actually teaches. But, and so maybe you don't read Genesis that way, and that's okay. I'm, 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 not, I'm not a theologian or an exegete. I'm just saying as a scientist, even taking it that literally, almost as a young earth creationist would read it, that actually ends up being consistent with the science. And to be clear, when I'm saying science here is I'm not talking about creation science. I'm talking about like mainstream evolutionary science to the point where, as you know, like even atheist biologists endorsed my book. Which was remarkable to me uh, whenever I started reading some of the endorsements because I did see that there wasn't um, uh, there, there, there was a large consensus across the spectrum. In other words, you have uh, those who are strictly geneticists who said, yeah, the, the math and the science works here, uh, to those who would be staunch creationists said, well, this is something that we ought to consider. So it's been remarkable how, how your book has been received. The conversation is continuing. Dr. Swamidas, as someone hears you uh, talking about evolution and, some, and, and then they hear you talking about Genesis, and you seem to be affirming both in, in some way, uh, so tell us, how do you understand both to be true at the same time? Yeah, so from a scriptural point of view, it just you, you might be wondering, like, like, how does this all fit? Well, the way it would work is we just kind of think about reality, and then I'll show you how Scripture fits that when science does. Somebody's saying that, that Adam and Eve are specially created in a garden, and we all become their ancestors, but there were people outside the garden, too, so uh, that, that their lineage ends up interbreeding with. Okay. And so that, that's the key thing. And so it turns out if you throw those people into the analysis that their lineage is interbreeding with, then that totally changes the science, science of it. And that there's really good uh, good reason to think that even if they were as recent as six thousand years ago, and certainly if they were more ancient than that, then we'd be that they'd be ancestors of all of us. That's, that's the first thing. And then from a scriptural point of view, uh, you can ask: Well, when people talk about monogenesis, this doctrine that's important in the church that was really formed over the last five hundred years, that really clarified that one of the demands of orthodoxy, as you could put it, is to affirm that we all across the entire globe, all peoples descend from Adam and Eve. So you are affirming that all of us descend from Adam and Eve. So our listeners are, for the most part, very conservative Christians. They're going to rejoice that you're affirming Genesis and affirming Adam and Eve. I think that the idea of humans outside of the garden will be the area that will have the greatest pushback. Um, how have you responded to those who've said, uh, how do you deal with that in scriptures? Well, I think it really comes down to how we define human, right? And maybe more important than how we define it is how scripture defines human. And there's an old definition of human that, um, that's being recovered here, which defines human as Adam and Eve and their descendants. <laughs> and by that, you know, there isn't actually humans outside the garden. In the same way how I was on a young earth creationist and I wondered about angels interbreeding with Adam and Eve to make Nephilim, Right. They're in Genesis chapter 6. Yeah. So yeah. like when we talked about monogenesis, the young earth creationists, it doesn't mean that Adam and Eve's lineage was pure, right? Um, and then, you know, in the same way that old earth creationists have wondered about um, mm -hmm. 
you know, Neanderthals interbreeding with Homo sapiens. Like they're when they talked about monogenesis, they didn't actually mean that there was never that, that there was never like exchanges between Adam and Eve's lineage and others. And so I think what we can really just remember is that this term human is a very rich term that has multiple legitimate definitions to it. And what we really need to care about is when we consider what scripture tells us is about humans is what is the definition of human it's using? <laughs> and, and I'll grant you that. I think that, uh, that this is a conversation. Uh, quite honestly, when I read your book, I struggled with that, still do. And I just, uh, uh, and I'm, I, I will agree with you that this is something that will have to be addressed uh, by Christians and by scientists. But um, isn't that the payoff, too? Yeah. That's the fun of it. We get to engage this grand question together. And I, I make sense of everything together. That's and what I, theology is supposed to be. I do enjoy the conversation, and I do want to have different voices heard so that we can be prodded and challenged in those areas where we may be uncomfortable. But <laughs> I think it's a profitable thing because, as you've pointed out, this is a conversation, if we don't have it in the church, it's certainly going on outside of the church. And if our young people are going to go into the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, they are going to face uh, a much more hostile environment, as you found out. And so I think that um, being able to, to have this conversation safely within the church without uh, people uh, uh, feeling threatened I think it's a good thing. Yeah, and also a conversation that brings us back to the actual foundation for confidence, which is what God did in history through Jesus, right? Tell us the name of your book. Oh, it's called The Genealogical Adam and Eve. And uh, who is it published by? InterVarsity Press, 2019. And uh, you can learn more about it at Peaceful Science or just Google because I've, I've had a chance to talk. I've been really privileged to be able to talk to a lot of people about it. We've been talking to Dr. Joshua Swamidas, uh, who is professor of laboratory and genomic medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, and he is the author of the book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, a very provocative and surprising book uh, that I encourage you to read with an open mind. Uh, one does not have to agree with everything Dr. Swamidas has said or what he has written to still appreciate someone who is a scientist and a man of faith, and I'm very grateful for that. Well, thanks. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for Ask the Profs. Uh, I'm Nathaniel Williams, editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture, filling in for Dr. Quinn during this segment, and notably not a prof. So, Dr. Keithley, I'm not responsible for answering today's question. I was thinking about just throwing it back to you. Absolutely not. This is for you and you alone. <laughs> the question we received this week uh, from a listener was this. Here it is. Was Jesus capable of getting sick? Yes, he was and is and forever will be fully human and eternal deity. 
but sickness is a result of sin, and he was without sin, including original sin. So, Dr. Keeley, that was the question that we received. So let me boil it all down to this. Did Jesus get sick? Let's remember, when the Son of God took on flesh and became the man Jesus Christ, he was not Superman pretending to be Clark Kent. Let's remember, Superman pretended to be weak, pretended to be hurt, pretended to be afraid, pretended to be threatened, when in reality none of those things were true. No, when Jesus took on flesh, he took on all of our weaknesses. Uh, And I think here is where uh, the early church father Tertullian could help us in that Jesus didn't save us only when he was on the cross, but that his entire life was taking on our burdens, our sorrows, our griefs. And so, yes, he lived a life just like ours. This means that as an infant, even though he is the divine son of God and knows all things, as an infant, he has to learn how to talk. He has to learn how to walk. This means that as a, as a toddler and as a little boy, when he ran down uh, the street and stumbled, and he scratched his knee. And when he scratched his knee, he bled. Uh, and so this means that he experienced all of the weaknesses uh, that we experience, and, he, and in so doing, redeems those. This is as much a part of him saving us uh, as him hanging on the cross. And let's remember, uh, as, the, uh, as the listener has pointed out, that uh, Jesus, as God, could not experience any of these things, but as human as he could. You say, could he, you know, could he get sick? Well, uh, because that's part of, of, the, of the fall, and that's part of, of, of sin. Yeah, nailing, you know, notice what happened to him whenever they drove nails through his hands. He bled. What happened to him whenever they uh, whipped him with the cat of nine tails? It ripped off flesh, and he experienced pain. And even before that, we have where he's in the boat, exhausted and asleep. When he's out in the wilderness, he gets hungry. So yes, he experienced all of the limitations and weaknesses that comes with the human condition of living in a fallen world. And so the short answer is yes, he did. In fact, one other thing to note. If you notice, uh, Jesus's brothers and sisters didn't believe that he was the Messiah until he rose from the dead. Now, if he had had some kind of unusual or odd childhood, you know, if they just said, well, you know, we noticed that every time he fell down, he never bled. He never got sick. We, were, we thought he was kind of odd and weird. Well, no doubt. No, that's not what they do. Uh, it's very clear that his childhood was a normal childhood like any other's. From Tertullian to Clark Kent, we got it all uh, figured out there in that answer. Thank you, Dr. Keithley. And thank you all for listening. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on either uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast platform is. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. That goes a long way to helping us spread the word about Christ and culture. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.